So two weeks ago I was here and talked about Dana and Sila and with the promise that I would talk about bhavana tonight. So dana is generosity or giving. And in a, a, a traditional framework or a traditional way of teaching, this is um first port of entry. It's the first thing that's taught. And it's it's not just taught in, in um, by the teachers, it's taught in the culture. So I shared some stories and you know, one of the things that was just very, very touching was is that in traditional families, when babies were born, oftentimes, you know, they'd like to bring the babies to the monastery even before they brought them home to their houses. Or, you know, they'd bring them to the monastery when they're teeny, teeny, tiny, and have them hold the spoon of rice, or the mama or the papa would hold the baby's hands with the spoon of rice, and and they'd, they'd put the spoon of rice into the alms bowl and monks and nuns would go by. So that, you know, from the time that they're this big, you know, the first kind of, one of the first lessons is of, of giving. And in a traditional society, um, this whole fabric of giving is, is part of the culture. Understanding the value of giving and the importance of giving and creating space and context for that to take place. And in a, a context of a spiritual path, and we can see that the value of that is just that it, it's a powerful antidote to a critical mind, the kind of mind that trashes and thrashes and berates and condemns and judges. And it's a, it's a powerful antidote towards grasping. So, you know, in our society, we have, we have the opposite which is is that we have billboards all around that tell us that if we don't get the thing that is being advertised, then somehow we don't have any value or any worth. And in a a culture that values generosity, the message is is that your sense of well-being comes from your ability to give. Rather different message. And so the the whole experience of cultivating giving as a as a path factor, as a as a as something then gives us access to our own goodness. That goodness then illuminates why it is important to live in a way where one is harmless and has integrity. Because when we have connection to our own goodness, we don't want to hurt anybody. When we're out of contact with our own goodness, then we can make all kinds of choices. We're not really tracking the results. So giving, then, is a condition for keeping a level of integrity where we're interested in not harming. And that lack of harm that we are committed to in ourselves as well as committed to in acting in the world then makes it possible for us to begin to look and see, well, what's actually going on in our mind? So until we have a framework where we are committed to that level of integrity, 
it's very difficult to get any leverage with what's actually going on in our mind. So Gary in Los Angeles told me that one of his friends was in the hospital um, coming off heroin. And uh, if I could keep uh, my thoughts and prayers on him. And so, you know, I did. You know, I, I kept him in my heart and in my prayer. And, 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 uh, and, and then I heard from him that when he was in the hospital, um, you know, he felt filled with light. And so he was very touched about that. And I said, well, you know, that light is actually your nature. That's what you're made out of. But it takes a lot of guts to stay, to get clear, and it takes a lot more guts to stay clear. And then, you know, what happens for people once they've gotten clear and they stay clear of drugs is then they have to deal with their hearts, their minds, and often the pain of what was it that actually instigated that interest to be shooting up in the first place, you know, what's going on there. And so the path of practice is to find the ground that we need to be able to get leverage on what's actually arising in the present moment and to see the causes and conditions that give rise to that. So in the Buddhist context, one of the frameworks that supports understanding how to work with what's arising is the foundations of mindfulness. The foundations of mindfulness are to work with bringing attention to our physical body and seeing what we see in our physical body. And this is not Buddhism for babies. This is like something that we can return to again and again and again and again and again as long as we are practicing. And one of the reasons why that's the case is because our thoughts and our feelings, our memories, all have a physical correlate in them. So as we get attentive and, and, and skillful at following the sensations in our body, we also have capacity for understanding what we're thinking and feeling. And that gives us inroads to the kind of residue of memories that are stored there. And in contemporary psychotherapeutic circles, if it hasn't released from your body, it hasn't released. So until we actually understand some kind of a habit or a formation or a memory, until we've actually released its physical correlate, we still have stuff that we're dealing with. So the body is a really important foundation on how to work with things. And, you know, I can just say from my own experience, you know, it's been a long project for me to actually be embodied. So for a whole variety of reasons, you know, at the first possible instant, I would leave stage left, you know? I just, you know, feeling my physical body was uncomfortable, and so I didn't like to do that. And so I just, I wasn't very present, you know? I was spaced out a lot of the time. And, you know, some of those experiences of being spaced out had other consequences, but it it meant that I didn't have a lot of foundation to work with what was arising. So I needed to develop the foundation of body. You know, it's like special needs, you know? have to have extra special practices 
to actually come back into contact with my own body. So in the traditional way of working with the body, according to the foundations of mindfulness, we can pay attention to posture, which we were doing tonight. We can pay attention to breath, which we were doing tonight. We can pay attention to body parts, you know, what's actually our body is comprised of. And in a a classical way of doing that, it's very helpful as an antidote when the mind is grasping particularly around sexual desire. But what I've said repeatedly, particularly when I'm speaking to groups of women, is is that for most people where their sexual desire is triggered visually, it's really effective to look at the component parts of the body. But if your sexual desire is triggered emotionally, you can take a part of body till the cows come home and it's not actually going to have any effect because that's not where it's rooted So we have to understand that these classical teachings were often given to monks and that as women, sometimes the way and other people where our conditioning is different, we need to actually understand the mechanisms and what was underneath that so that we can use it in a way that actually gives us leverage where we need it to. So that practice of looking at the unbeautiful characteristics of the body is so that we have some space around the stuff where we get locked in. But if it's not visual contact that stimulates that kind of desire, then we need to use the principle in a place where we do get caught out. So, for example, if we get caught out wanting emotional closeness, then we can see how emotional closeness doesn't last, it's transitory, and in contemplating the unbeautiful aspects of emotional closeness, we can have a little bit more perspective and space on the stuff where we get caught out. So in this way, we're using the Buddhist teachings in a real clear way where we're understanding the point and the purpose and the application, but not superimposing conditioning that doesn't belong to us onto us. So the first foundation is working with the body, and there's nine or 13 different practices specifically around the body. Posture, breath, just being aware of what's going on, the component parts, and then many different contemplations around watching the decomposition of the body. Because most of us really think that we are our bodies. And so the experience of death is both compelling as well as terrifying. And when we get it, that the nature of a body is that it does die and that nobody is exempt from that, you know, then we can begin to use that understanding, not so that we're freaked out and morbid all the time, but so that our attention is focused on what doesn't die. So the contemplation of the body then supports this is supported by looking at the kind of pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral qualities that we experience. So we're moving from something that is simple, the physical sensations of our body, to something that's a little bit more complicated. Now, most of the time, we don't notice pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. Pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral immediately goes into... I want it or I don't want it, and all kinds of stories about it. 
But let's say something happens and there's something really lovely, you know, and there's just this wanting, you know, a natural feeling of wanting it. If we focus our attention on the pleasant quality of it rather than the story around what it is or our wanting or how we might feel if we get it, it's a lot easier to be with than the story. So just learning to focus on this a more simple quality of pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral can reduce huge kinds of complexity into something that's much more manageable. And any time we're dealing in a life that we're dealing with, which is phenomenally complex, having places where we can simplify gives us kind of like leverage and a crowbar where these big, huge stories and dramas can collapse into a bite-sized piece, you know? So I don't know what you're into. Whether you're into fast computers or cars or whether you like nice coffee or you like to go into the mountains, I don't know what you're into. You know, an adventure, going on a trip. I don't know what you're into. But something can come up and it can just grab your attention. And rather than move with the story of, oh, wouldn't it be fabulous if I had that and how I would feel if that happened, you can just say, oh, pleasant feeling. It's a pleasant feeling. And staying with the pleasant feeling. You don't need to push the pleasant feeling away. You don't need to make it not pleasant. But when you're just present with the fact that it's pleasant, then the whole kind of big, huge story around it has less energy in it. When there's less energy in it, there's more capacity to witness it. When there's more capacity to witness it, we aren't hijacked in the same way as when we don't see it. Same thing with unpleasant. So somebody is snarky and says something rude or nasty or you feel really put out. You know, unpleasant feeling. We don't need to go into a whole tailspin about what they said and what it means and what, you know, the relationship with you and how you must be and what you have. Unpleasant feeling. You know, it can be as simple as that. So when we can take things that really knock us out and turn it into something really simple, then we've got leverage to navigate. So we move from body to feelings, and the next level of complexity is working with the things in our mind. So the third foundation of mindfulness in terms of practice is to work with things in terms of not judging. So from the third foundation of mindfulness, love and hate are equal in terms of their objectivity of something to be known. So you think, not possible. How is it possible in a Buddhist, in a Buddhist culture that love and hate are the same? Because from the perspective of watching something that arises in the mind, they are both objects that can be known. One does not need to be valued over the other. We don't need to create a war about the things that we're experiencing. We can allow what is there to arise. That is a huge freedom. You have permission to feel and to think everything you feel and you think. Everything. Even the nastiest, horriblest thing, you've got total permission to feel it. Doesn't mean you can act on it. It doesn't mean that you should believe it. But you don't have to be at war with yourself because it has arisen. Now, I don't know if it's apparent how incredible
incredibly liberating that is. But it means that you can feel and think whatever you feel and think, and by the fact that it has arisen, is not a problem. Do you see? Do you see how unbelievably freeing that is? So the third foundation of mindfulness gives us permission to be with what is. And then the fourth foundation of mindfulness is, okay, let's relate to some of this stuff in a context that then gives us the skill to work with it in a way that allows appropriate behavior. So, you know, if we're feeling hate, that actually from the fourth foundations of mindfulness is something that we need to bring into balance. Not because there's something inherently wrong with us for experiencing it, because that mind state does not give rise to action which is fruitful. Very different. It's very different from a fundamental judgment that who we are is is insufficient because this has arisen. And then there's many different categories of ways of working with what has arisen in order to bring balance, to bring skill, and then to bring appropriate action. And one of them is the Four Noble Truths. So in the Four Noble Truths, we can see that there's suffering. So there's suffering in change, there's suffering in being born, there's suffering in getting older, there's suffering in dying. And being born and getting older and dying isn't only the experience of a body being born and aging over a period of 80 years and physical death, but it's the experience of what happens when our mind gets born into an idea and then it shifts. You know, a project feels really fabulous when we start it and it can be an absolute pain in the butt when we get into the middle of it. You know, it's a lot of work. And we're tired. We didn't, you know, it's like we signed up for the enthusiasm. We signed up for the birth, but we didn't mm-hmm. sign up for the diapers. You know? Well, every time there's birth, there's diapers. They might look different, you know. So when we get a sense of the suffering that's present, we can bring our attention to it. Now, one of the things that's fascinating in our modern world is that we experience insufficiency as a personal problem rather than as a noble truth which needs to be realized. When we look at insufficiency as part of the Four Noble Truths, as a truth that needs to be realized. Wow. That totally shifts the equation from me being fundamentally lacking to this is something which is embedded in experience that needs to be awakened. The second noble truth is that there's a cause of suffering. And our society is really fabulous about blaming external causes. 
And contemplative disciplines are about looking inward. Now, this does not condone being a doormat or having people be abusive. This does not condone situations which are oppressive. It's not that. But any time there is suffering, there will be a component of wanting or not wanting it to be that way. And when we focus our attention on the wanting and the not wanting, not as a hammer to annihilate it, but as an interest to wake up to it, then right present exactly where the suffering arises, exactly where the suffering arises, is where we can see the suffering release. So that means that we don't have to get rid of the external circumstance in order to actually experience freedom. That's another huge kind of key of liberation. That the freedom that we long for can be found exactly where we are suffering by changing our relationship to what is going on. And then the fourth of the Four Noble Truths is that there's a path that supports bringing the factors necessary in order to see clearly and to bring this into experience. So dana or generosity, or giving, creates the foundation, gives us access to our own goodness, begins to cultivate habits of mind that cut across grasping and around negativity, so that we can practice with integrity, have a certain level of integrity. The integrity frees us from some of the gross um, obstacles of the mind that allows us to see what's actually going on in our experience. When we're able to see what's going on in our experience, we don't have to live as a victim. We can begin to see the cause and effect relationship between the way we pay attention and the things that we experience. Our joy, our freedom, our capacity for ease and well-being are not random. They're very much things that can be cultivated. And this is really something that is a gift. It's not only something for the select chosen fruit. Within a human mind is the capacity for freedom. A freedom not only that has the ability to live well, but a freedom that has the ability to be to know what is not subject to birth, old age, sickness, and death, and yet to live in relationship as human beings in the world with each other. It's a radical freedom. A radical freedom. And that's what the path is designed to support us to realize. Is the steps and the goal. Thank you for listening. 
To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.